Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. So we discuss exercise testing in clinical environments, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, or COPD. This is our main focus. We also discuss the anatomy of the lungs, different risk factors for diseases of the lungs, vaping, combustion, and marijuana usage, oxygen saturation, symptoms of breathlessness and their descriptors, also leg pain and how that figures into the works. We also talk about cardiopulmonary exercise tests in specific, what it's like to transition through various phases of your academic path, and life in medical school overall. So let's hop into it. Lauren Tracy is an accredited kinesiologist with over four years' experience in clinical research in chronic respiratory diseases. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology in the Honors Program and a Master of Science in Exercise Physiology, both from McGill University. This being said, most of her research revolves around chronic respiratory disease, especially chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. She studies this both from exercise and exercise testing perspectives. Lauren worked as a clinical research coordinator in respiratory research at the MUHC for one year following her Master of Science. And currently, she is a first-year medical student at McGill University's Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. Woo! <laughs> in her free time, she enjoys discovering new music, doing yoga, going to concerts and traveling when these things were, of course, possible pre-pandemic. I've personally known Lauren for well over a decade, and we've continued to cross paths over the years, so I'm thrilled to have her on the show today. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thank you for being on the show. I think the last time I bumped into you in person was at November Project, which for the listeners, if you don't know what that is, there's this kind of global community of people who like to exercise outdoors when it's very cold if you live in cold climates. So I think I saw you when you were involved in your master's research at the time. I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's cool. So you just completed your degree and now we're on to med school, which is awesome. You are potentially one of the first or second people who's taken that route. Um, So I'm actually really excited to be catching you at this transitional period. I will definitely be asking you about the transition shortly. But first and foremost, I want you to share with myself and the listeners what exactly is entailed by doing a master's in exercise physiology. So I was pretty fortunate. I got a very clinical and very hands-on experience. Obviously, there's so many different routes and different paths you can take within exercise physiology and kind of different topics and different areas of interest. Because mine was very clinical, I, I got a lot of patient experience and I was working at the hospital during my master's. So that was really interesting. 
And honestly, I learned throughout the whole thing. I, I was naive to how kind of hands-on research like that could be and, and how you could really merge clinical research with something like exercise physiology so simply because you don't realize how it, like important um, exercise and, and kind of stressed, stressed environments are on the body when it comes to clinical diseases. So yeah, it was really interesting. It was a great experience and it's taught me a lot. I'm really grateful. So were you specifically looking at the effects of exercise or at least the interaction between exercise and other conditions or specifically conditions caused by, let's say, you know, overexertion? No. So I was coming from the perspective of um, how exercise could either help people with diseases in terms of their quality of life and symptoms, but then also from an exercise testing perspective, yeah. uh, because in something like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, exercise testing is actually really helpful when it comes to trying to see people's symptoms and how their body reacts to different stressors that they may see on a daily basis. So um, that's kind of the perspective I was taking. But you're right. Some people do the opposite and look more at exercise and how it impacts the body kind of on the opposite spectrum. So, yeah. Okay. And you're, this is kind of like a push and pull there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, di- yeah, it, it, that's what makes this field interesting, actually, is just that you can come at it from so many different angles and, and study very healthy people and put them in a position where you stress their body and, and make their body react to exercise. But then you can also use exercise to your advantage to help, um, you know, evaluate people's diseases and things like that. So it's it's a cool field. So... What is the role of exercise in your life outside of academia right now? What is it about exercise maybe that that made you want to study it from a scientific perspective or clinical perspective? I started back in my second year of undergrad. So I was knee deep in in a kinesiology degree. So I was very exposed to that. And I guess I was a little bit biased because I was learning that on a daily basis. And that was super interesting to me. But I I played soccer all my life. I mean, that was kind of something that I always loved and always integrated myself in, which definitely played a part in why I went into that degree to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, I loved, I always kind of knew I wanted to go into medicine. So I loved that clinical side of things. And when I heard my supervisor, Dennis Jensen, when I had him as a professor in second year, and I kind of saw how much he used exercise testing to evaluate people with COPD. It was it was really interesting to me because it kind of blended that clinical side with the exercise interest and it seemed like a perfect fit. So I went for it and it worked out really well. So in terms of focusing on the respiratory element of disease, is there any kind of family history there that drew you to it or it just the pieces kind of fit together naturally? The pieces just kind of fit together. Um, I mean, everyone's impacted probably to a certain extent. Someone in their family deals with, you know, some sort of cardiovascular disease, but it wasn't like it was something that was really impacting me personally. It just, it fit. I was really interested. And even now I'm very interested in, in the topic and I'd like to continue working as much as I can in it going forward. So just kind of worked out that way. Happy it did. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me a bit about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. What kind of populations does this disease crop up in and what are some of the catalysts for it? So chances are everyone listening here probably knows somebody or whether they know it or not that has COPD. Um, It's pretty common. A lot more in older populations than younger, just because usually smoking is the catalyst, but it happens long, a long time afterwards. So, you know, people start smoking in their teens. And I think especially with the aging population, you're seeing it more and more now. 
because, you know, you take 60, 70, 80 year old people back when they were in their teens, um, a lot of them were smoking at very, very young ages because back then that was just kind of the thing to do. So that's the type of population you see most of the time. So I was working mostly with people I'd say age 55 plus. And like I said, smoking is a huge risk factor. But other things play into it. You can have a genetic predisposition. Um, some occupational exposures will potentially lead to it, but smoking is usually the one thing you associate with COPD. And is there a specific chemical in cigarettes, for example, that is the reason for it? Like what you're saying would maybe tie together this occupational in environment? It's actually just the noxious particles, basically, that um, irritate your lungs. And when you breathe them in over a long period of time, it can not only affect the airways themselves. So the airways, kind of as you're breathing air in, obviously the air goes through the airways to get to your lungs and those get inflamed and you end up with mucus secretion and it kind of obstructs the airways. But then there's also kind of, it's a, COPD is a bit of an umbrella term for that with um, also the airspace affected, which is kind of where gas exchange happens. So you've got these things called alveoli in your lungs. And basically when the air goes all the way through the bronchi and ends up into the kind of deep part of the lungs where the gas exchange could happen, usually it should be a nice balloon that expands when air goes in, does the gas exchange and kind of recoils to push the air back out. But in COPD, those balloons just aren't, they don't recoil properly. So the air kind of gets trapped and you end up with problems breathing out. And that's why it's kind of called an obstructive disease because you end up with gas trapped in the lungs and things like that. Wow. So there's a lot of things to play into COPD and some people will be affected more, you know, in terms of their airways. Some people may be more on the emphysema side with the air spaces. So mm -hmm. it's interesting, but it's a little it's complicated to get your wrap your head around sometimes. It's good that it's complicated. You're yeah. going to have a whole career ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if it was so simple and we could answer the question in this in this half-hour conversation, then I guess that would be the end of it. You could you know, Very true. pack your bags and go home. Very true. I'm curious if, if there are any conditions, let's say, in terms of air pollution that are bad enough that people would develop uh, COPD if they lived in highly polluted metropoli. It's a good question, actually. I'm, I don't want to say that I know for sure it would be a direct cause, but I also don't want to say that there wouldn't be a link because I would imagine, I would probably guess that people that have smoked, for example, and living in polluted areas might be affected more than somebody that smokes and living out in a rural area. I'm sure they kind of um, act synergistically in a negative way to, to impact your lungs. That all kind of plays in together. They all act as noxious particles and um, issues for the lungs. So, And one more question along that line, which yep. is, what are your thoughts on vaping? Good question, actually. There's a lot of research, and that's a big thing right now, because marijuana use, smoked or combusted, is also a risk factor for COPD. I mean, it mm -hmm. does contribute to it, maybe not to the same extent as smoking cigarettes, just because of the content, but it does actually contribute. So a lot of people are doing research into vaping because, oddly enough, there's um, research showing that cannabis could actually help with breathlessness when it's vaped. <laughs> so the research is kind of all over the place. There's there's some showing positive impacts and some negative, so it's a little bit complicated and I don't think people really have a, a good grasp of exactly what the impact is. We know combusted marijuana is still not good. Vaping, I think if we find the right formulation, who knows, it could even be a good thing. I think the, the research is still going on that. Hey, I'm still Jeremy and this is still Abstract and you are still lovely old you. Guess what? We're going to read now from not Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which we've been doing for a few weeks now, but I'm going to read from a book called You Are What Your Grandparents Ate by Judith Finlayson. It's a great, 
reference, I'd highly recommend it. This is a quick blurb on exercise and why it's important. When it comes to supporting your muscles, exercise is at least as valuable as good nutrition. Resistance exercise, movements that force your skeletal muscles to contract, has been shown to increase strength and decrease frailty in older adults. Aerobic exercise, movement that increases your pulse rate and respiration, can increase strength and can also improve gait and overall quality of life. Ideally, a minimum of 20 to 30 minutes, three times a week, of either type of exercise is recommended, although as little as 10 minutes a day has been shown to reduce frailty and lengthen lifespan. That concludes today's reading, and back to the episode. So we could change gears a bit here then. Um, I, th I think you did actually kind of mention the circulatory system before when you talk about gas exchange, right? And, you know, oxygen entering the bloodstream. So at least from, from my semi-minimal experience with anatomy and physiology courses along the way, the respiratory and circulatory systems or the respiratory and the cardiovascular systems are highly connected. Yep. How much of your research, or at least how much of uh, COPD, relates back to the circulatory system? Is there some kind of interaction happening there? I think most of the interactions would happen later in the disease course when it starts affecting the oxygen saturation, because down the line, if you're not able to get that air in to your lungs properly, or if you're not able to get it out and it's kind of staying in your lungs and gas exchange isn't happening properly, which is what happens in COPD, in the more severe cases, you end up with low oxygen saturation. So that can impact your cardiovascular system, obviously, because you're um, your blood can't pick up that oxygen from the lungs like it would be uh, normally or in, an, in a healthy individual. Aside from that, there's some downstream effects. Some people end up with pulmonary hypertension, which is more related to the blood vessels, but it's pretty, that's more rare. I think most of the time, if anything, it's the oxygen saturation that's affected in COPD. Mm -hmm. And right now, are there any, I guess, heart pump analogs for the lungs where they can get the alveoli to kind of force that air out? I just, there's going to be an episode coming out, I think next week, where I was speaking with somebody um, who was researching this, this new heart pump, right? And so sometimes blood's not really flowing through the heart properly. And so you need some extra aid. It, it sounds like something similar is happening at this end stage of the lungs where the air is not being forced out quite strong enough. Yeah, if the, the concept is definitely that. The problem with the lungs, I would say, is that because these alveoli, there's millions of them in the lungs, it's it's more a bit more difficult to isolate them and really try to um, isolate those and kind of help them specifically. There are treatments, the, the inhaled treatments that most people will get um, are a little bit more common and well-known, and that's usually what's used just because it has more of a diffuse effect on the lungs as a whole. And hopefully that can help some of the, the downstream effects. Even if you can open up the airways leading to the alveoli, that might help a little bit. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the background um, behind the, the treatment. So no, I don't know anything about that, but if uh, okay. that equivalent would be there for the lungs, that would be a pretty cool experiment or <laughs> invention. Yeah, I mean, coming up with like a million little devices to, to plop into each of the alveoli seems a little bit over the top. <laughs> It might be a bit difficult, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as somebody with with asthma, I have I've been using an inhaler to to manage that on occasion. Yep. I, I I generally have exercise and uh, cold induced asthma, so sometimes exercising outdoors is the worst thing I can do for myself. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I can totally see how, you know, taking some kind of inhalant can, it, it's helped me before, just kind of open up my airways. And if you're bringing more oxygen or more air to the alveoli, even if they're not functioning optimally, that's, I guess, one, one decent way to do it. So we'll yeah. see what happens in the future. Maybe something down the line will come. Who knows? The alveoli. Yeah. So if your research was focused in your master's degree on seeing how exercise can help conditions like this, how does exercise help conditions like this? <laughs> so my research, my thesis specifically, was it was a retrospective study. So it was kind of taking a database and, and doing some analysis on it. And I was actually showing how putting people with COPD through an exercise test, um, what you call cardiopulmonary exercise test, if at the end of the test you ask patients, you know, what was the main reason for stopping exercise? Because usually they're symptom limited, something bothers them and they're not able to continue. Usually the answers are either shortness of breath or leg discomfort, interestingly enough, or a combination of both. And most people think it's a lung disease, they're going to stop because of breathlessness, but interestingly, over half the people stop because of leg discomfort or a combination of both. And that's something that's a little bit counterintuitive, but really interesting. So I delved into trying to find the physiological characteristics that kind of differentiated the groups that stopped because of breathlessness, because of leg discomfort, or because of a combination. So that's cool. kind of the approach I took. And interestingly, the people that stopped because of breathlessness actually had kind of a worse mechanic function of their lung, and they reported worse quality of breathlessness at the end of exercise. So despite being pretty similar in every other aspect of their disease and in terms of the severity of their disease, these people in different groups responded very differently um, in terms of how they why they stopped exercise, and that translated to some physiological characteristics that could distinguish them. So what do you mean by mechanics then? So the lung mechanics, just being able to expand the lungs and being hyperinflated. Remember what I was saying about the gas kind of trapping in the lungs? So the people that stopped because of breathlessness had actually worse hyperinflation. You know, they had uh, maybe in terms of disease severity, they were similar, but specifically the hyperinflation was worse. They were feeling a more unpleasant shortness of breath at the end of exercise too. So the, what we took out of it was you know, all these tests that doctors can put them through and, and trying to gauge how they feel on a daily basis based on purely just disease severity. Something as simple as an exercise test could actually tell you a whole lot about how they're really feeling just by putting them on a bike and making them exercise and ask them a simple question like, why'd you stop? <laughs> so it's actually, uh, it was a it was a pretty cool finding, especially from something retrospective and database. So that's very cool. I appreciate almost the simplicity behind that right the data was already collected you just were you were asking a very specific question or yeah. at least looking at the responses to one yeah i find it almost ironic that breathlessness is a result of having too much air stuck in your lungs you know it, like that's yes. just that's it's, almost just cruel <laughs> it, it's a counterintuitive thing but it's interesting people that have really severe disease will end up with like what they call barrel chest because there's just everything just hyperinflates, the lungs just get bigger. Um, and you can actually see that. In the really, really severe cases, yes. you can. There's some people that will actually show kind of the barrel-chested um, look to them where their chest, I'm, I'm doing the motion, I'm realizing you can't see me, but yeah. there's, uh, there's, there's basically, it's barrel-chest, it's is, exactly what it sounds like. This is, this is crazy, like I'm, I'm realizing now, you know, there are, there are really two positions within the breathing cycle where you could be stuck. One is where your your lungs are full and you're taking shallow breaths with this expanded these expanded lungs, or when you're fully exhaled, you're having trouble actually bringing air in, like you're breathing through a straw. 
Yeah. So that's interesting. You say it actually, because when I was my, my supervisor, Dennis, he, um, in his class that he teaches on this, when I was an undergrad, he, the way he kind of introduced it to everybody was he made us all do an experiment and I'll never forget this. And I, I still do it with people when I'm trying to explain it. Cause it's super interesting. You basically just take a big breath in. And when you're long, you know, when you're almost full, stop, stop there and hold your breath and now try to take another breath in. Okay. Yeah. So you could see that it's hard when you're up at that high level already, you've already got that volume in your lungs. It's hard to take another deep breath in. And as much as you've got air in there, try to mechanically make your lungs inhale more. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. And that's what over time, um, as their disease progresses, that's what they're having to do. They're having to breathe in at these super unpleasant and not mechanically favorable conditions of their lungs where they're having to bring more air in when there's already some trapped in their lungs. So it's a strange concept. That is that is crazy. But what I'm thinking about right now, just in terms of like a visual, I'm sure you've seen this in, in movies before. Maybe as the listeners, you've maybe seen this somewhere where like someone's lungs, like someone's having trouble breathing and someone just like hollows out a pen and just like punctures their chest so that they can let the air out or, yeah. or they can let the air in. Does anything like slightly more formal in terms of like a medical procedure exist, like where you can actually put kind of like a uh, a stent that connects the inside of the lungs to the outside so you can actually drain the air? Not that I know of. That's like a lot more clinical than I was doing with my research. And that's mm -hmm. this is all maybe stuff that I'll learn in med school um, going forward because I'm still yeah. kind of in the basics. I know there's some people have mentioned valves and there's there's a lot of stuff that people have tried to do, but... There's lung volume reduction surgery that is actually quite effective for that exact reason and exactly what you said. I just don't know how they do it, to be honest with you. I'm not okay. sure how the procedure works. But yes, ultimately, if you could find a way to reduce the lung volume, that would at least help. So that's right. the me that's kind of the mechanism behind that surgery specifically. But yeah. there's still a lot of room for improvement when it comes to treatment. Wow. Fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you said that some of the main things that came out of your research was you noticed shortness of breath and leg discomfort. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about this leg discomfort. Where does that come from? Like, what's the relatedness there? So I think there's still a lot of back and forth to trying to figure out, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the breathlessness and the issues with the lungs that then prevents oxygen from getting to the muscles properly and you end up with dysfunction of the muscles, which could mm -hmm. explain why leg discomfort could bother somebody during exercise. But then there's also people that wonder, you know, is it something inherently there because of the COPD that we just don't know why? And then it, it kind of leads to um, a whole other discussion. So there's still a lot of back and forth and they're not quite sure if it's dysfunction or disuse. Yeah. You know, it could also simply be that people just aren't using their muscles as much as they normally do because they just can't breathe as well and they can't exercise to the same extent. So there's so many mechanisms that could be playing in. But regardless of those mechanisms, a lot of people are stopping because of their legs. And it's interesting when you're talking in the context of a respiratory disease that all of a sudden you've got these people stopping because of their legs. And it's it's not something you'd expect, but it happens a lot. Yeah, it's like a it's like a secondhand effect. In some way, yeah. Yeah. That's that's crazy. And I, I guess you, you wouldn't really see any effects of people stopping, let's say, because their arms were hurting, right? Because first of all, right. if you're running, you're not really using your arms. Arms also require less oxygen because they're smaller than yes. legs are. So 
it's just kind of further feeding that that chicken or, or egg problem where you kind of need your legs to produce a cardiovascular workout. Exactly. And that's why it makes it complicated. It is on the bike. So it's requiring a little bit less, like usually people with COPD exercise on a bike just to reduce a bit of the load mm-hmm. um, and kind of isolate the legs because it's, it's a, the fatigue comes on a little bit slower. If that It's the same for anybody. We could probably go on the bike at a decent speed longer than we can go for a sprint. You know, it's the same kind oh, of, yeah, for it's the sure. same kind of thing. Absolutely. That's why I prefer cycling. Are you a cyclist same. more than a runner? Absolutely. Bad knees. Yeah. Soccer killed me. So. <laughs> oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh, God, what, no. Just what lo- kind of oh. dark past do you have uh, from soccer knee injuries? I Honestly, I played soccer for over 20 years, so it was just <sighs> like, yeah, so it was just a lot of wear and tear, and what actually made it really bad was... um. I was in Africa, like, I guess it's six years ago now, and I climbed Kilimanjaro, and the descent killed my knees. They have not been the same. Going down that mountain, the impact, oh my god, (laughs) brutal. That's crazy. Yeah. Did nobody warn you about that? Like, hey, uh, going down Kilimanjaro, not a breeze for the knees. I mean, you'd think that going up would be the worst part that you have to get through, right? And Mm -hmm. doing it, I'd do it again going up, just you know, lift me down the mountain. Don't make me go down it again. I don't know. It's no one really thinks about that part of it, but <laughs> hook <him> a gondola. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's cool. Well, congrats. That's a, that's a pretty big feat. Thank you. Yeah. I, I also, I've injured my knees before and it's, it's, it's very sad to think back to it, you know, cause obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but well, that's, that's today, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet, so if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science, whether you are a university or research institute or any organization looking to support the show, please reach out to us over email at abstractcast at gmail.com. If you don't have the means to support us financially and you're just a dedicated listener, drop us a line at the same email. We'd be so happy to hear from you and get some of your feedback on the podcast so far. That's all from me for now. Let's head back to the episode. So, very cool. Now, aside from leg discomfort and shortness of breath, you also said there were other factors that came into play that weren't as uh, important or as, as notable, maybe. What were maybe just, just out of curiosity, some other factors that you were looking at in this data? The big secondary analysis we did was the breathlessness. Um, a lot of people just kind of say breathlessness and just say, yeah, people are short of breath and don't really think about how that feels and how that impacts the person themselves. Um, so these things called descriptors of breathlessness have started to come into play a lot. And with a disease like COPD, where it's very heterogeneous and people are affected to different extents, being able to kind of qualify your breathlessness in a way that can kind of describe it more than just, I can't breathe is, is nice. So that was probably my favorite thing that I did as a secondary analysis was just showing how the people stopping because of breathlessness felt a very unpleasant um, sensation of breathing compared to the other groups. So, you know, they felt like they were suffocating. They felt like they were like, there's, there's descriptors like that. Like I can't get enough breath breath out. I'm suffocating. They're very unpleasant things. Like none of us would really want to be feeling that. Mm -hmm. And they felt it to a much greater extent if they were stopping because of breathlessness compared to leg discomfort. So that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And we did look at general exercise parameters as well, just seeing how they, the cardiovascular system responded to exercise. But in the end, those kind of respiratory driven parameters were what was the big finding. So I 
can't help but draw a parallel between your research and also what I've been hearing about some symptoms of COVID-19, which for the listeners, if you're listening in the future, <laughs> was a thing that was happening while we were recording this episode. Feel free to Google it. It was a pretty big thing. I mean, I've I've heard people describing basically what you're saying, you know, shortness of breath and uh, feeling like they're suffocating. Now that you're kind of in more of a, a med school environment, are you really starting to notice the, the similarities between things like COPD and the effects of COVID? I haven't done a whole lot of, you know, I haven't studied much in terms of COVID. And obviously we learn, we hear about it in school still because it's the hot topic. We've done respiratory mm -hmm. and cardiovascular blocks so far. So those are right along the lines of COVID. But um, yeah. I can't say too much in terms of the, the mechanisms behind it. But being from kind of with a respiratory background, even just other cardiovascular diseases, other respiratory diseases, those kind of common feelings of feeling like you're suffocating and, and really being short of breath are so common to so many diseases. And it's sad. It's it's really hard to to hear about how many people are feeling these terrible sensations on a daily basis, whether it's because of the lungs, the heart or otherwise. Um, so yeah, you can definitely draw parallels between a lot of conditions with that. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, we don't really need to discuss COVID any longer. <laughs> um, so now that you're in med school, you have just begun this year. Yep. So things are still pretty early on. So there's no kind of specialization yet on your end then? You're just... No. Um, yeah, McGill runs it in such a way that the first couple of years are pretty theory-based. So I do yeah. have some hands-on exposure, but that's mostly reserved to third and fourth year. So it runs by block. So it's kind of the first year and a half is all, you know, you start with a respiratory block and then you go into a cardiovascular block and you do a gastrointestinal block and you kind of learn all the base knowledge that you need for all these things. And then in your yeah. last half of med school, you do what they call clerkship, which is more of the in-person hospital rotations where you're learning the hands-on stuff. So it's an interesting cool. way of doing it. I, I enjoy it. I'm curious to know how the transition's been from a master's into, into med school. Weird. <laughs> like, it's, uh, I've had to go back to undergrad. I mean, I haven't taken classes like this in <laughs> three years, over three years. So it's, it's strange. It's, I guess having that background at all is, is helpful. And I know kind of how to do it, but it's also the hardest school I've ever done in my life. So Okay. Because you did say it reminded you of undergrad. And obviously, since undergrad, you've completed a graduate degree. So presumably, that would prepare you somewhat for the difficulty of med school. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the transition is just as difficult in terms of kind of scheduling and just the, the flexibility of your schedule is just that's probably the biggest transition because at undergrad, it's pretty structured, you're on a schedule, you have midterms, finals, then you go to grad school, and it's more you know, you're writing your thesis. So you do your research and you can set your schedule to a certain extent. You have deadlines and you have to get them done, but it's not like you're in class from eight to five and then have a midterm and a final and then move on to another course. It's very, it's a, it's a very different way of studying. So now I've kind of had to go back to the undergrad <laughs> mentality right. in that sense. Is that a good thing? Like, is it almost nostalgic in a way, or are you wishing that this was just not the way things were? Oh, no, I love it, to be honest with you. I like the structure, and I think with this amount of content, it would be overwhelming if it was a kind of self-paced thing. I think it would be too overwhelming to not have that mm -hmm. structure, so I personally like it. I can't speak for everybody, but I'm happy that I have that structure for sure. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you have time for exercise now that you're in med school? Like, How has the role of exercise in your life changed since you've gotten there? 
it, well, I mean, COVID hasn't helped because <laughs> hard to go out and, you know, go to the gym or go do any classes or things like that. Um, I really try to just, I walk for any upwards of an hour every day. Cause mm-hmm. I, that's some days that's all you can do. So I wake up early and walk. At least I'm moving. I've got right. a standing desk. So when I have to sit for 12 hours or work for 12 hours in the day, I can stand for most of it, but that's amazing. it's tough. I'm still working to try to get as much exercise in. It's it's a weird transition. Good. Well, I back that. Standing desk plus morning walks. I mean, you're killing it. It's as good as it's going right now. <laughs> so everything you're doing school-wise then is, is, is done from your, like, your home? Pretty much. I've been on campus three times. There's wow. been three situations where I've had like lab-based things, but um, everything else is at home. Exams are at home. Classes are at home. It's a whole different well, world. I hope for your sake that you get to experience the majority of your med school career at med school. I hope so too. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you got a nice office. It looks nice. You got some dark drapes there. They look soft. But apart from that. Yeah, I know. It kind of looks like I'm in a hospital room, but it's great for separating myself off. It's good. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's making the audio sound great. That's awesome. <laughs> so I have, um, I have one final question for you. Sure which is, you can interpret as being related to academics or not. I'm really just asking it in general to you, Lauren Tracy, as a person. Okay. There are a thousand people listening to you right now. What do you tell them? You know what? Follow your heart. And this is going to sound cheesy, but if you want to do something, go for it. But don't try to do anything in a cookie cutter way and try to follow a pattern and do things according to what other people are trying to get you to do. Because... I never thought I'd be, never really thought I'd actually get into med school. It was always one of these things. I never really thought that I'd go into research, but here I am almost four years of my life doing it and I loved it. So yeah, just, just go with your gut. And if you have an opportunity, take it, seize it, get everything you can out of it. And don't, don't try to follow too much of of the pattern of what other people do because I'm a firm believer that sometimes doing the opposite is actually where where the good things come out and you get the opportunities you never thought you'd have. So that's probably what I'd say. That's great. (laughs) I appreciate that. I am curious to know though, how is it that you compare your, uh, you know, academic journey to the the average academic journey and come to this conclusion that you had a highly non- non-regular, maybe non-linear path? Well, I mean, there's obviously a lot, there's actually quite a few people in my program that are, you know, out of grad school and things like that more than I'd expect. Um, But I think there's that kind of mentality, especially when it comes to med school, that you've got to get in to pre-med or you have to get in straight after your undergrad or, you know, you get in as early as you can. And I'm not saying that it's the right call for everybody to get in, you know, with five degrees under their belt and, you know, going back at the age of 35 or 40. But it's, uh, I think there's, there's a certain, I guess, a- assumption that people kind of go in right away and they, they get in right away and they don't have to try a couple of times before getting in. And, um, in that sense, I've tried a few times. It took me a couple of times to get in and I chose research sometimes over opportunities that maybe would have, you know, put me in a better, better position for med just cause I loved it. So, and I think all those things are going to make me a better doctor and candidate because I actually have quite a bit of life experience behind me, I, I think. And, you know, I feel a bit more confident. So that's kind of what I mean by untraditional. I I went into a very hands – kinesiology is not something you'd expect to go into to then go into med school. Most people are in more basic science programs. So I have no idea why I made the decisions I did, but 
I'm, I'm happy I did. And I guess it worked out. So that's kind of why I try to tell that to people as much as I can, because sometimes trying to fit the mold ends up doing the opposite that you want it to do. I love it. That's great. Sometimes looking back on your life, you can make sense of it. Other times you still don't really understand exactly what happened, but you are here now. So exactly. that's really all that matters. Exactly. And uh, so this, this is awesome. This has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with myself and for our listeners. Um, this, is, this is something I really enjoy doing and you've made it enjoyable. So thank you. Thank you. This has been so fun. Thanks so much for having me. Take care, Lauren. You too. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.